This morning's passage is taken from, as you can tell from your bulletins, the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, which I will because the print is bigger, um, it's page 16. So Genesis 22, and I'll be reading the first 19 verses. It's a passage that many of us know very well, but regardless, I'm going to be reading it. The Sacrifice of Isaac, Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19, and this is God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, or as many of you know in the Hebrew, Yahweh Yireh, or Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, or the Lord sees. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven And as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, of course. We pray that. You would show its relevance to us. Therefore, in, now that it's been read, we pray that in its preaching, you would speak clearly as you do. We pray that you would speak through me, around me, as would be necessary, that your word would speak directly into our minds and hearts. Exalt yourself, O Lord. Apply it to us. And even change us this morning. Make us the people you want us to be. And use this word to do that. And then most of all, your living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I think it's impossible to read this passage 
and not be struck by several things immediately. Uh, One thing uh, in the classic reading of this passage, particularly among Christians, is we know from elsewhere in Scripture as well, we know that we're supposed to see Abraham as an example. And so when we read this, one of the things that strikes us is how does Abraham obey God as he does? How does he do this? And then by, by implication, how would we do it? How are we supposed to follow Abraham's example? Because clearly Hebrews and James tells us that Abraham is the example, model of our faith. And how would we in his place be able to do that? But other things strike us, too. Sometimes things we're embarrassed to ask, like, how could God ask Abraham to sacrifice his child? How could he ask him to do that? God's asking for a child sacrifice? How could he ask that? Of course, you need to realize, if you don't already, it wouldn't occur to Abraham, necessarily, that God would not ask for a child sacrifice. Because we have to realize we are in the book of Genesis, in the 22nd chapter. And Abraham has a limited revelation of God. He only knows what God has spoken to him, what he has revealed to himself. So Abraham does not have scripture. He doesn't have words of the prophets. He has what God has revealed himself. So if God says, I want a child sacrifice, Abraham sees around him, pagans offer sacrifices. It might not occur to him that that is a strange thing, except he does know some things about God. So the strangest thing for Abraham probably would be Wait a minute. I've waited 25 years for this kid. This is this is the fulfillment of the prophecy you've given me and now you're telling me to sacrifice my child. That would be the most the thing that he would probably most greatly struggle with. And yet he doesn't object. And almost to press the point further, which I think he does, God says in verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Not just, you know, take your kid and sacrifice him. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. It sounds like God is being cruel. Okay, I want to make sure you take, I want you to do the most difficult thing you can possibly do, Abraham. And I want you to do it. And so we know that it's a test. And it seems really cruel. It seems really hard. And those are the kinds of things that we struggle with. But I'm not really here to defend God. I don't think God needs us to defend him. But there are some things that are difficult that we understand later as Scripture unfolds as to who God is. But the the part that makes us, I think, the most uncomfortable, honestly, in this passage is the high bar that Abraham um, hits for us, that, that we are supposed to follow the example of Abraham. Look what God calls Abraham to do. Could God possibly ask him to do anything more difficult? And the, the obvious implication is, what might he ask us to do? I mean, is it possible that he could also ask us to do something equally hard? So I have to ask you this morning, what could God ask you to do? What has he asked you to do? What could he require of you that might be very hard. What's the, what's the hardest thing that God might require of you? And if he did require it of you, and it would have to be obvious, I suppose, what would you say? Could you do it? Could you do it like Abraham? Could we obey? Where would we get that kind of faith from? Abraham is commended several times in Scripture as the father of Israel, the father of all believers, the great man of faith, 
Uh, Hebrews 11 and James 2 tells us that this passage is a prime example of what true faith looks like. So what I want to do this morning in the classic sense is take three things I think that we do find from this passage and elsewhere in Scripture that actually tells us where you do get that kind of faith, where that faith comes from. We see it in Abraham, and I think we need to find it in us also. What is faith built on? And I think the first thing we can see is that faith is not based on nonsense. It's actually built, number one, on the knowledge of God. Faith is actually built on the knowledge of God. Abraham is not building his faith or being able to obey God based on some vague knowledge of who God is. He's not, he's not guessing who God is. He's not determining who God is as he goes along, as he makes up God. You, you've seen people in our culture kind of develop a theology as they go along. I think God is this. Well, my God is this. It's such nonsense. You can't do that. You can't just think of God as whatever you'd like God to be and declare that you're, well, people do it, of course. But Abraham doesn't do that. Where is he getting his theology? Well, again, he doesn't have scripture. What he does have is some revelation of God. In fact, I'd like you, if you would, to use your Bibles and and see what we do know. And I have to do this kind of quickly because of time. But you see, the first time we see that God has an interaction with Abraham, and we don't know that we have every interaction recorded for us, but in Genesis 12, this is the first time God comes to Abraham and he tells him basically, I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you many children. This is Genesis 12, the first three verses. I'm going to give you, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to give you much land and I'm going to bless you and bless the nations through you. So primarily three, we could count more, promises. And then later on in the chapter, he confirms it again as he walks to the land. This is the land I'm going to give you, Abraham. In chapter 13, he confirms it once again in verse 14. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. This is the land I'm going to give you. So he's confirming it again. That might be the second time that God speaks to him. I'm not really sure. Chapter 15, we see another incident where God speaks to Abraham, I'm your shield, your great reward. And Abraham says, that's wonderful, but I still don't have a child. Okay, you promised me at age 75, time is going on. Okay, I still don't have a child. And God says, I'm going to give you a child. And in verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That verse is quoted numerous times. Okay, Paul quotes it several times. Abraham believed God And it was credited to him as righteousness. But then God says, I'm going to give you lots of land, too. And Abraham says, prove it. How can I know that you're really going to give me land? For some reason, it's easier for Abraham to believe, even after these years, and as he's old, and Sarah is old, that he's going to have a son. But he has a hard time believing he's going to get the land. So God, in his graciousness, says, this is how you will know. And he performs a covenant ritual. He cuts the animals in two. He tells Abraham to do that. And a smoking fire pot goes through those two rows of animals, saying basically, if I don't keep my word, I, God, let me be cut in two like these animals. So God swears, I keep my promises. And so we see that. And then he promises. And then he even tells him in Genesis 15, beginning of verse 9. And by the way, in, in, um, in the future, your people are going to be taken away and kept enslaved for 400 years And then they'll be returned. So he tells them what he's going to do. Then the next interaction we see is in Genesis 17, where God says, 
walk, be, walk before me, be righteous. And he tells them to be circumcised. He and his household, be circumcised. And then there, um, he's still, he's 99 now. This is 24 years later. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham says, well, what about Ishmael? Okay, the, the child that I've born through my slave girl. And he says, I'll bless Ishmael because I'm gracious, but he's not the one. And then in chapter 18, God appears as three visitors and says what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, by the way, next year, you're going to have a son. And he does have a son. And in chapter 21, when Isaac is born, in, in verse 12, Sarah's complaining that he, she doesn't want Ishmael and her mother around anymore. And God says, listen to Sarah. It's all right. Cast her out. She's not part, he's not part of the covenant. And then we get to our passage. So this is the extent, as far as we know, that Abraham knows about God. This is the extent. It's not nothing, but it's not a lot either. So what does Abraham know about God? He knows that he's powerful. He knows he's sovereign. He knows the future. He controls the future. He knows that he's the judge of all the earth. Genesis 18:25. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham is picking things up. He knows he's gracious, patient, kind. As I said, he keeps his promises. And when he goes to slay Isaac, Hebrews 11:10 tells us, and he reasoned that God could what? Could raise the dead. He knew even as he kills his son of the promise that if necessary, God could still keep the promise. So somehow, from what, Ab- from what Abraham knows about God, he's able to do the impossible. Kill his son, if necessary. Because somehow he still knows God will be God, and I know it. So his knowledge is what informs his faith, what feeds his faith. So I have to ask you, what do you know about God? Are you ignorant? You know a lot more than Abraham, don't you? Okay, you have scripture. You have a lot of things that God has... If I asked you to make a list of what God has re- revealed to you, don't do it right now, but you could make a list. Now, please don't tell me about the things that God has spoken to you or given you in dreams. I, I don't really want to hear about it, okay? Um, Steve, Steve Lawson of Ligonier Ministries tweeted something great a couple of years ago. He said, do you want to hear the audible voice of God? Then read your Bible out loud. Because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. I wish I'd said that. Okay, we have a record of so much, though, of what God has revealed in Scripture. I mean, you think about. I mean, we have the whole Old Testament, so we know that God has created. He judged the world in flood. Uh, he he had barren women uh, conceive and give birth. He called the people to Himself. He led them out of Egypt, part of the sea. He fed them from heaven with, with bread, water from rock. Um, he gave them a land. He caused the sun to stand still one day. A mighty nation from nothing, led by a, a king, a shepherd king, another king with the wisdom that no, the world had never seen, a, a temple that was the envy of the world, and, and a covenant that he would not let go, even when the people were unfaithful. And even when he judges them, and read the prophets, even when he judges them, he's, on the other hand, he's always saying, but I love you and I will restore you. And ultimately, he sends his only son to die for the sins of his people. This is the kind of God that we read about. This is the kind of God that he reveals himself. Many of us don't even know our scriptures well. It's right there. But many of us don't even really know scripture that well. It's right there. We can know that. Now, 
Notice this. I've probably brought this up in the past. But notice, do you remember the story of Zechariah in Luke 1, which we're going to read about actually in just a couple of weeks. In fact, I think I'm preaching on that. Maybe I shouldn't let, uh, mention it, but I will anyway. Zechariah is in the temple and Gabriel pierced him and says, you're going to bear a son even though Elizabeth is very old. And what does Zechariah say? Prove it. How can I know? The same question that Abraham asks. But what happens to Zechariah? Boom! You're not going to speak again. How dare you question? Why, why is he judged so much more severely than Abraham? Because Abraham didn't have a whole lot of revelation about God, did he? But Zechariah, he's got the whole Old Testament. He knows everything God had done. And he's got, he's got, I mean, he's got the prophets. He's got scripture. And how dare he question this God that he knows? He's very patient with Abraham. He's not so patient with Zechariah. How about you? What do you know about God? Not only do you then have the scriptures, you have the Holy Spirit if you're in Christ. So your faith is based then on what you know of God. And so, there's so when God gives you something really difficult, you know God. He's no stranger. He's like, I don't understand. How am I supposed to do this? This is God we're talking about. And so in so many ways you can rest and say, this is God. This is God. And we can trust him. The second thing is not just a knowledge Okay, I mean, we, we can often, somebody, somebody close to us asks us to do something. Sometimes we can just do it because of who, who is asking us. But the second thing, and this is very clearly in the scripture, we see it in verse 12. Okay, what does it say? Hold, don't, don't slay the boy because now I know what? That you fear God. So we think of it as a test of obedience, but it seems to be a test of do you fear God? Now, I, I know that children are asked in Sunday school, what does it mean to fear God, boys and girls? And, you know, we all understand that it's not supposed to be just a fear of, you know, terror that he's going to zap you. But adults, do we really know what it means to fear God? What did it mean to Abraham to fear God? Well, I think quite simply what it meant to Abraham to fear God is he wouldn't dare disobey. It wouldn't occur to him to disobey. He, he wouldn't want to defy God. If God says to do it, his fear would say, I will just do it. Now, that's fear, not wanting to defy God. Think about that. Look at our culture. The reason that our culture allows what it allows and questions the things that it does and changes laws to allow all kinds of things is because there's no fear of God. There, there's just no fear of God. And, and churches even then change laws and say, well, the Bible actually doesn't say that. No fear of God. No fear of God. But, you know, even seemingly devout Christians seem to do that, too. I, I was speaking with a student in Pakistan who had spent time in the Middle East, and he was in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and he was in a cafe, and he said two, Africans, two African women came up and offered him their services. And he said, no, thank you. I'm not interested. I'm a Christian. And he said, oh, we're Christians, too. You laugh. And, and, and I mean, it makes sense. But how can that be an amazing divide? I mean, talk about a classic faith and works divide. I mean, people can actually compartmentalize. I'm a Christian, but it has nothing to do with how I behave. But but many I mean, you, you, you have you have Christians that are at, not at all concerned with 
behavior or, or, or changing behavior, unconcerned about eradicating sin in their lives. So we have single Christians that are very sexually active or partially sexually active, but I mean, they're sexually active. You know, Christians that are steeped in pornography with no concern about changing behavior or addressing the sin. Christians that are bitter, bitter, unforgiving and not concerned. Not concerned at all about sins like that. And then other ways, I mean, we're talking about coarse language and choices and entertainment and all kinds of things. You know, not at all concerned whether or not it pleases God. Just not concerned. Where is the fear of the Lord? Now, I don't think I'm a legalist. I may, be, I may err on that more than I think, but I don't think that I am. I don't think that's the issue. But if we fear God, then we don't want to displease God. So it's not a matter of, oh, no, he's going to reject me. I don't want to displease God if I fear God. John Piper, you knew I'd work him in somewhere, has a great illustration for the fear of the Lord. He talks about climbing a glacier in Alaska. So this was a stretch for me. I'm trying to imagine myself climbing a glacier in Alaska. But anyway, he he, he talks about, you know, you're climbing a glacier in Alaska, and there you are in the face of a very steep glacier, and a ferocious storm comes in. And you're about to die because uh, it, it threatens to sweep you off the face of the glacier. But then you see this cave that you can actually get to. So you, you climb into the cave and you sit there and there you're, you're safe. And you watch the terrible storm. And there in the cave you are safe. But you dare not step out. And I thought, that is a great illustration. Because... If you are not safe, there's a good reason to be afraid of the Lord. Because, if, because all sinners should definitely fear the wrath of the Lord. And the only way not to fear the wrath of the Lord is to have been saved from the wrath of the Lord by the Lord, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. And once you are in the safety by putting faith in Jesus Christ, because the wrath has been poured out upon Jesus Christ, then you're safe and you dare not step out. And, you know, you and I both know, you and I all know people who have stepped out, who do step out. And what does that mean for those people who who step out and who flirt with sin and, and play around with, well, I'm saved, so I can do that. It doesn't matter. I believe in eternal security. I believe in perseverance of the saints. And I also believe in the deceitfulness of the heart. And so I believe that many people really convince themselves falsely that they are saved and can do whatever they want to do. And I believe those people are going to say, Lord, Lord, and find themselves damned. I dare not step out of the safety of the Lord. The fear of the Lord tethers us to him. And I believe our faith is built on that. It's built on knowing him and it's built on fear. I wouldn't dare go away from the Lord and I will obey him. I will trust him and I will do what he says because I don't want to go anywhere else. If I, if I ended the sermon there, it would sound more like a threat. Okay? I don't mean for it to be. But the fear of the Lord is a good place to be. But the third point is that the other thing that, they, that faith is built on, not just knowledge and not just fear, 
and it's in the passage, but I have to look a little harder, is love. The love of the Lord. And when I say love of the Lord, that's vague. Which direction? Both directions. The Lord's love for us and our love for the Lord. Uh, Faith is grounded in loving the Lord and his love for us. Does Abraham love God? Can you see it in the passage? I know that we see throughout Genesis that Abraham is devoted to the Lord. We see that he sets up altars and he calls upon the Lord. We see that in Genesis 14 when he conquers the allied kings, which I didn't really refer to there, that he says, don't reward me. I'll only accept a reward from the Lord because I don't want anybody ever to claim that a man made Abraham rich, but only God. And then he tithes to Melchizedek. A tithe is a symbol of devotion to the Lord. Everything I have is yours, Lord. That's what a tithe represents. But then it suddenly occurred to me that the relationship between Abraham is described elsewhere in Scripture. A passage in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7. We all know what that says, right? 2 Chronicles 27, passage we've all memorized. No. But it says there that Abraham was a what of God? Was a friend it just comes out. It just wow. There it is. Abraham was called a friend of God, but it's also quoted again in James chapter two, verses twenty-one to twenty-three, which talks about this very passage. So I felt like that was really affirming that that God that that Abraham, even as he obeys God and as he offers his son as a sacrifice, he was a friend of God. That there's this loving relationship. That God is not cruel. That God is kind. And even as he says, offer your son, your only son whom you love, God, uh, Abraham says, whatever you want, Lord. Whatever you want. I don't know why you want this, but I'm your friend. And I don't question you. I will do what you want. And God is not cruel. He gives a substitute. He gives a ram in the thicket. And all of us biblical theologians, we understand that that ram points to what or whom. That ram points to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the substitute, so that Abraham Abraham must not sacrifice his son, but instead sacrifices the ram. Could it be that that ram points, that, that, that Jesus is talking about that ram in John 8, 56, when he says, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. Abraham's situation is where you and I are called to be. When God pushes you to do something really hard, what could he ask you to do? What has he asked you to do? Some of you might not have been stretched that far yet. I didn't sign up for this. Well, yeah, you have. You have. You don't know what the Lord might ask of you yet. But can you do it? You know I'm fond of saying that if you say the Lord never gives you more than you can handle, I say nonsense. He always gives you more than you can handle. He loves to stretch your faith because he is a great God and he promises to be there. So if you're a child of God by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ, you're precious to him. He loves you. He was testing Abraham. He did not need to know himself. He needed Abraham to know how much Abraham loved the Lord. Some of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards, but even if you're not, it's not vitally important. A Puritan uh, preacher, great theologian, probably the greatest theologian, even better than John Piper, that America has ever, ever known. But he was called to be the principal or the uh, president of Princeton College, 
became Princeton University. And when he went there, he was immediately inoculated for smallpox. But vaccinations, inoculations were not quite developed then. And instead of being inoculated from it, he caught smallpox and died. And he left his wife, Sarah, with 10 children, okay, some of them quite young. And the first thing she does, or one of the first things she does, is she sits down and she writes a letter to her adult daughter, Esther, and she writes this. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod. She might be talking about discipline. And lay our hands upon our mouths to shut us up. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. Could you write a letter like that? Would that be your response if God took your husband, your spouse, and left you in that situation? But, I mean, I hardly have to say it, but she just knew. She knew it was of God. And God asked her to be put in this situation, and she was ready. Do you love God? Not because he first loved me, not because he saved me, but because of who he is, because of his attributes. Is your knowledge of God, your fear of God, and your love of God, is it enough to give you the faith that God requires? If God asked you to do the impossible thing, could you do it? Could you? I don't know what God is asking you to do. I don't know what your current situation is. Physical sickness, emotional health in the family, financial distress, the breakdown of a relationship in your family. Your faith may not yet even be challenged. You might be heading for something. But your faith has got to be based on a firm and genuine knowledge of the true God, based on who he has revealed himself to be. And your faith has got to be based on fear of him. You don't want to be anywhere else but in his refuge. Through Jesus Christ, your faith must be in Jesus Christ in order to be safe from God and have a healthy fear of him. And all of this is tempered by love because God loves his children more than we can understand. He gave his son, his only son, whom he loves. Does that sound familiar? Yes. I think that's on purpose. It's pointing even to God giving his only son. But for him, there was no ram in the thicket. God gave his son, and he absolutely did die while we were yet sinners, enemies. He gave his son. He did the impossible. So can we exercise the faith of Abraham? Well, we can because we serve a great God. Knowledge and fear and love of God. That's where the faith comes from. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we feel so inadequate when we think about who you are and the faith of Abraham and our own faith. Lord, I don't know everything that people here are struggling with, but you do. And I pray that you would exalt yourself and help us to place our faith solidly in you. So help us to uh, take this word to heart. 
make it alive and uh, help us to uh, be strengthened in Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.